Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today I'm joined again by Dr. Nicholas Tiemann, who's a cardiac surgeon and director of a, a director of adult ECMO at the University of Virginia. And today is part two of three in our discussion of venovenous ECMO. Last time we covered indications, outcomes, and cannulation. And today we're going to discuss oxygenation, ventilation, and pump speed and pressures. So if you haven't listened to part one, I would highly encourage you to do so before tuning into this episode. And as I mentioned before, this discussion is for everyone and anyone really who's interested in ECMO, but it's really going to be most useful for those who have had past exposure to VV ECMO and advanced ventilator management. Yeah, it's great to be back, Patrick. So like you said, the first episode, we talked about the process of putting somebody on on ECMO. Now we're going to start getting into what you do once you have a patient that's already on ECMO. Right. All right. So let's dive into the physiology of ECMO. That's really what it's all about. We're going to start with oxygenation. So oxygen delivery is determined by a really complex interplay between the ECMO circuit, uh, the patient's native cardiac and lung function, and that patient's metabolic demands. Right. So you can increase the patient's oxygen delivery by increasing the amount of oxygen that's delivered through the ECMO circuit. You can do that in two ways. One is increasing the flow, uh, the blood flow rate of the ECMO circuit. The other is increasing the hemoglobin concentration, therefore having a higher oxygen carrying capacity within the patient's blood. Second way is you can increase the oxygenation of the native lung by changing the ventilator settings. And the third thing you, do, you can do is decrease the patient's oxygen demand. So by decreasing the patient's oxygen consumption, you'll uh, you know have more efficient oxygen delivery to the, to the patient. You can do that with uh, sedatives, paralytics, or other drugs like beta blockers. Right. So again, important concept that Nick just mentioned here, ECMO is used to increase oxygenation by increasing blood flow through the oxygenator itself, part of the, the circuit, and or by increasing the oxygen-carrying capacity of blood by increasing the concentration of hemoglobin. So ECMO contribution uh, to ECMO delivery can, in fact, be calculated. And so we're going to brace ourselves here for a little bit of podcast math, two things that don't really go together. So I'm going to give you four kind of key concepts here, and, and, and that's okay if it just goes right ahead. So O2 delivery. Uh, O2 delivery is, is equals blood oxygen content times flow, most often measured in deciliters per minute. So oxygen delivery equals blood oxygen content times flow. That's easy. Now, what is the arterial uh, blood oxygen content uh, measured as milliliters of O2 per 100 mLs of blood? That's this classic formula you've probably heard before, stored somewhere in the back of your brain, having to think about for a long time. And that formula is 1.34 times the hemoglobin times the SAO2 plus 0.0031 times the PAO2. So note uh, the difference, uh, uh, the, mo the importance of uh, hemoglobin compared to PAO2. Hemoglobin is multiplied by 1.34. PaO2, uh, partial pressure of oxygen in the arterial blood, is multiplied by 0.0031. Huge difference. Third thing here, normal oxygen consumption in adults at rest is roughly 120 mLs per minute per metered squared. Or another way, 
to think about it as three to four mLs per kg per minute. And lastly, normal oxygen delivery is roughly five times consumption. Our goal in supporting a patient in the ICU who's sick uh, and while on ECMO is to deliver at least three times consumption, two to three times consumption. Patrick, you got to love some good podcast math here. You know, this, that, this was is- ter- that was terrible. I hope, I hope. we got to we cover it, though. We had to cover it. This is great. I mean, this is the kind of like hardcore physiology that those of us that specialize in critical care really get excited about. And that's why ECMO is so much fun, because we really get to to delve into the physiology here. So, you know, ideally, you want to match the VV ECMO blood flow to the cardiac output. You know, sometimes this isn't possible if the patient's hyperdynamic or septic, and they've got a high cardiac output, uh, you, you won't be able to get that much ECMO flow. But if you can uh, get an ECMO blood flow, that's about 60% or more of cardiac output, then that's usually doing pretty good. Great. And in general, again, in general, we want our SATs to be at least 80 to 85% or higher in these sick patients. We'd like our PaO2 to be greater than 50 or 55. And we want the SVO2 in the venous drainage cannula to be greater than 65% when it's returning back uh, to the ECMO circuit. And then we want that blood that's leaving the ECMO circuit and the return cannula to be fully oxygenated at 100%. Now, it's important to note, though, that SATs and the PaO2 do not determine the adequacy of oxygen delivery. All right, that's an extremely important concept. So even if the SATs and the PaO2 are low, that doesn't necessarily mean that the patient has end-organ ischemia. It could just mean that their extraction to delivery or delivery ratio is very high. Absolutely. That is such an important point. The, the concept of adequate oxygen delivery. We will tolerate unusually low PaO2 and oxygen saturations on VV ECMO if we know that the delivery is robust enough to ensure good organ function. Right. And we can oh. know that uh, by monitoring things like urine output, lactate, even cerebral oximetry, some folks do it on ECMO. Uh, and there's a lot of other ways as well. And, you know, when in doubt, you can always transfuse the patient to maintain a higher hemoglobin and thus a higher oxygen carrying capacity. And we do this more uh, liberally, certainly, than we do in our standard ICU patients with a hemoglobin cutoff of usually seven. Yeah, so really, you know, so important, you know, very often when we have patients on ECMO, uh, we get kind of some uh, some angst from the nursing staff or the respiratory therapists about, you know, a low PaO2 and is the is the ECMO working right? What's going wrong? And that's really just part of the process. You know, the oxygen delivery is what's really important. Uh, one, one point about oxygenators. So, so these are rated for flow based on the ability to increase the SpO2 from 75 to 95% when the hemoglobin is 12. Uh, now most commonly, uh, the most commonly used oxygenators are rated for up to seven liters per minute of blood flow. And that's more flow than you're going to get from your, from most of your VV cannulas. So the oxygenator, as long as it's functioning well, is not going to be a limiting factor to, a limiting factor to oxygenating the blood. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so Nick, in the last episode, we cannulated a COVID patient who failed optimal management. All right. Let's say she now has a 25 French multi-stage femoral vein drainage cannula that ends at the hepatic uh, uh, IVC. And that patient also has a 21 French single stage return cannula that ends right at the cavoatrial junction. Despite flows of four and a half liters per minute, her SATs remain low, they're in the low 80s, and PaO2 in the low 50s. 
So how can we troubleshoot oxygenation? This is a this is the kind of a key, uh, uh, certainly a key concept. There, you know, we're on ECMO to improve their oxygenation. You're at the bedside. You notice this. What are some of the main steps you can take to improve that patient's oxygenation? Great question. So there's a lot of different things that we can try. Let's kind of go through this step by step. So first, you can increase the ECMO blood flow. You can do this by increasing the RPM, uh, the RPMs, the, the, the number of uh, revolutions of the pump. You can also improve your venous drainage uh, by either adding another cannula or upsizing the cannula that you already have. Second, like we just mentioned, you can give a blood transfusion, increase your hemoglobin, increase your oxygen carrying capacity, and therefore your oxygen delivery. Third, like we talked about in the previous episode, if you have if you have significant recirculation, then that's going to uh, decrease the amount of oxygenated blood that's going to the patient's body. It's just blood circulating around in, in the ECMO loop. And so you can readjust your cannulation strategy to minimize your recirculation. Number four, you can decrease oxygen consumption. So if the patient's agitated, you can increase the use of uh, sedatives or paralytics. If the patient is febrile uh, or septic, you can uh, give Tylenol, identify and treat the source of the sepsis. Uh, if they're having seizures, you can treat that with anti-epileptics. If they're tachycardic, uh, you can uh, judiciously use beta blockers to address that. If the patient's having increased work of breathing or dyssyncreating on the ventilator, then you can uh, adjust the ventilator support. You can increase the sedation to make them uh, more comfortable on the ventilator. And then again, if there's any other underlying medical problems like sepsis or anything else, you just treat the underlying cause. Fifth, uh, if there's any oxygenator failure. So uh, if, if there's a thrombosis in the oxygenator, the oxygenator isn't functioning well, then, uh, and we'll talk more about how to identify that a little bit later, you can replace the oxygenator. And finally, when in doubt, rely on the patient's lungs. You know, the patients have, uh, these patients all have lungs that are working some better than others. But if you can improve the contribution of the native lungs, then that's going to offload some of the need for the ECMO circuit to support the patient. So you can add pulmonary vasodilators. You can change around your ventilator settings. You can try proning the patient, which is certainly safe to do with a patient on ECMO. Uh, and in the next episode uh, of this series, we're going to talk a little bit more about how to manage the ventilator, but that's always an option is to optimize your ventilation. All right. Good stuff, Nick. So, so key question, how to improve oxygenation when it's not sufficient and we're on ECMO? Uh, we can increase the flow, increase hemoglobin, decrease oxygen consumption, recognize and replace uh, the oxygen failure, oxygenator, excuse me, failure and replace it. And we can work on improving native lung function. So let's say you increase uh, a flow, you increase your RPMs and increase flow through the circuit. You transfuse the patient and you increase her sedation and her oxygenation improves. However, the next day, her CO2 begins to climb. What can we do about that? Sure. So that's a kind of a different process. So, so carbon dioxide clearance is, is much more efficient than oxygen exchange uh, because the CO2 is more soluble. What the main determinant of the CO2 in the patient and the CO2 clearance is, is the sweep gas. And so when you're, whenever you're rounding on an ECMO patient, somebody always says, well, what's the flow? What's the sweep? And what does that mean? So what the sweep is, and usually it's just given as a whole number. So somebody will say the sweep is two. What that really is, is a flow rate. In fact, it's the gas flow rate. So we, we hook up, uh, just, you know, a gas line from the wall, hook it up to the oxygenator. And that's in the flow rate of that gas, uh, is in liters per minute. And that's what the sweep is. That gas that's going through the oxygenator is separated from the blood by a gas permeal membrane. And uh, initially, that gas is usually 100% oxygen, but we hook up a blender that allows for the delivery of a specific, you know, FiO2 or oxygen, concentra oxygen concentration of the sweep gas. 
And we can adjust that as the patient's native lung function improves. Right. So in general, you can start the sweep gas flow uh, in liters per minute at the same rate as blood flow. Now, you want to be careful not to drop the CO2 too fast, as this can result in uh, cerebral ischemia if it's very rapid. Um, so, Nick, let's finish off uh, by talking about the pump, uh, talking about RPMs and pressure. So modern-day pumps are magnetically levitated uh, centrifugal pumps. So these pumps have a magnetically uh, activated uh, impeller device that spins around. Uh, this creates negative pressure, and it draws blood into the pump, and it disperses it radially into a specially shaped case. Uh, and in the case of ECMO, this pushes the blood uh, back through, uh, excuse me, through the oxygenator uh, and then back into the patient via the return cannula. Yep. And, and the nice thing about most ECMO circuits is that we're able to monitor the pressure and determine the pressure at certain uh, at a numerous certain points along the circuit. Right. And, and, and there are uh, let's review some of the pressures then. So there's a pre pump pressure the most commonly referred to as the, the venous pressure. There's a pre oxygenator pressure, most commonly referred to as the intrinsic pressure. And there's a post-oxygenator pressure, most often referred to as the arterial pressure. So the pre-pump pressure or the, or the venous pressure measures the negative pressure of venous drainage. Uh, and this should be less than 100 millimeters of mercury. The pre-oxygenator or intrinsic pressure measures the uh, positive pressure at the oxygenator inlet. Uh, and if this goes up, this indicates resistance in the oxygenator due to clot or other things of that nature. And there are really no specific cutoffs for the intrinsic pressure. You really want to trend this. If it trends up, 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 you uh, are really going to be alerted to oxygenator dysfunction, namely really clotting in within the oxygenator. And lastly, there's the post-oxygenator or, or arterial pressure. And this measures the pressure at the return cannula. And most people uh, say that this pressure should be less than 300 millimeters of mercury. Um, as a as a general cutoff. Uh, really important points here. I, I want to uh, clarify one thing that you said. Uh, the We want the, the venous pressure to be less negative than 100. So we don't want it to be okay. any more negative than 100 millimeters mercury. And, and you know, uh, if, if, you're, if you're in an ECMO center, then you've got somebody that's sitting at the bedside with that ECMO circuit, either the bedside nurse or a perfusionist or an ECMO specialist. And that's one of the things that they're constantly paying attention to is, is these pressures. And they can tell you, at any given time, what your venous and arterial line pressures are, and they're keeping a close eye on that. The uh, the other thing that we're interested in is the the delta between the intrinsic pressure and the arterial pressure, which is just simply the difference between the two. Uh, and that is one way that we can identify obstruction or thrombosis uh, within the oxygenator. So when the delta increases, when there's a drop-off in pressure um, from the, uh, <clears throat> the pre-oxygenator and the post-oxygenator uh, pressure, uh, then that becomes a problem. And so usually uh, the delta pressure is typically less than 10 millimeters mercury per liter of flow, um, but there's not really an absolute cutoff for that. So you kind of have to follow the trend. And if that's increasing, then you have to be concerned that you're developing uh, obstruction in your oxygenator. Yeah, I say by and large, uh, the most common issue you run into is getting more negative on your venous side than negative 100 millimeters of mercury. That's the most common thing that pops up. All of these are very, very important, but that's something that's going to take up more of your time than anything else. Uh, and that's, again, related to, to flow. Um, so, uh, Nick, let's troubleshoot some, some flow issues. So let's say our COVID patient has low, low flows and we increase the RPMs, uh, but flow won't go above three liters per minute. And if we increase the RPMs too much, the venous pressure drops lower than negative 100 millimeters of mercury. And the drainage line actually 
chatters. So what's a, what's a guy like me in an ICU to do when this happens? Yeah, so that's a great question. So that, that chattering that you're talking about, sometimes we call it chugging also, is when the cannula itself is kind of sucking up against the wall of the vessel. Um, and so what happens is that there's a, a, a negative pressure, a suction that's generated by the spinning of the pump that's transmitted up through the cannula and kind of making it jump around a little bit. Um, and so when you've got an issue with, with low flow, there's kind of uh, two major issues that can be causing that. So, so one is a low preload. So there's just not enough volume in the right atrium or in the intrahepatic IVC, uh, to be able to, uh, to drain, uh, there's just no volume to drain or you've got a, a high afterload on the circuit. So, uh, low preload, uh, like I said, with, uh, which when that causes chugging is usually the result of hypovolemia. Um, but sometimes it can also be caused by uh, poor position of the cannula if it's just not in, in, in the right place, or if you have a, a high intrathoracic or intraabdominal pressure, uh, like if you had a pneumothorax or abdominal compartment syndrome or something else like that. Okay, so so poor flows with chattering, I would need to think about giving volume. I would need to think about things like a pneumothorax or abdominal compartment syndrome and certainly repositioning the cannula, uh, that uh, drainage cannula, ideally within the intrahepatic IBC. So remind me again why we think at least the intrahepatic IBC is the right place. Yeah, so so we think that, that in that area of the IBC that because there's liver parenchyma, all around it, that that area is somewhat stented open. So it's, it's less floppy. It's not going to collapse upon the cannula. It's not likely to, to suck down. Um, uh, the, the cannula is less likely to suck onto the wall. Um, and also because the hepatic veins are right there, there is a, um, you know, there is particularly higher blood flow, uh, right in that area. Sure. Now, what about poor blood flow due to low preload without chattering? Yeah, so if you're, if you're not chattering, then, then one thing you have to think about is that you're, you've got a, a cannula issue, whether that's, uh, the cannula is too small, whether something in the, in the cannula or the line is kinked, or whether you've got some clot in your cannula. Um, to remedy this, you would need to either upsize your drainage cannula, add another one, unkink the thing, or, or identify clot and, and exchange it. I, I do also want to point out that, you know, sometimes you, the kind of the default response to chugging or chattering is just to give volume. But a lot of times when you've got a patient with ARDS, you are trying to diurese them. You're trying to get fluid off. And so sometimes the answer is just to turn down the flow. And as long as they're, they're stable and as long as they're perfusing with a lower flow, then, then that's totally fine. And that might be better in a lot of scenarios than giving a bunch of volume back that's just, that are just going to hurt the patient. Right. Be thoughtful about that instead of just giving fluid upon fluid upon fluid. And again, we mentioned before in the last episode when we talked about placing uh, a cannulas, you always have to know where those cannulas are at. So if you run into some issues, make sure you double check, do an exam on, on the depth of that cannula insertion and, and get an x-ray or use an ultrasound to make sure the thing hasn't moved around at all. Uh, Nick, you also mentioned a low flow due to high afterload, not a preload issue, but high afterload. What's that all about? Right. So this is a problem with uh, returning blood through the return cannula to the patient. And so that can be uh, caused by, uh, a, again, a, a kinking in the, uh, the line or the tubing or the cannula. You can have some clot forming uh, in, the, uh, in the circuit or in the cannula. Uh, the cannula could just be too small and not, not able to flow enough uh, volume to support the patient. Or like I just talked about, if you have an increasing delta P, you could have uh, a clotted oxygenator. And you know, one thing that's kind of particularly pertinent for current day and age is that the patients that have COVID, we are seeing just an incredible amount of thrombotic events in these patients. And so if you've got a patient uh, who has COVID and you're, uh, you're seeing a lower flow than you, you think and your delta P is rising, you have to have a, a really uh, a low index of suspicion that, you're, uh, uh, that you've got a clotted oxygen in there. Sure, sure. So, so good. That about wraps it up for today. 
Uh, on the third and final episode, we will cover ventilator management while on ECMO, uh, anticoagulation and hemolysis, in addition to decannulation and complications of ECMO. Nick, let's get started with a quick review. All right. So a couple of great points from today. So first, oxygen delivery can be increased by increasing the ECMO oxygen delivery. So that's by increasing the flow or increasing the hemoglobin concentration. You can also increase uh, the contribution of the native lung by making changes on the ventilator or by decreasing the patient's oxygen demand. And you can decrease consumption uh, through sedatives, paralytics, or beta blockers. Second, in general, we want the SpO2 to be greater than 80 to 85%, the PaO2 to be greater than 45 to 55, and the SVO2 in the venous drainage cannula to be greater than 65%. We also want the SAO2, the oxygen saturation in the return cannula, to be 100%. Although the SpO2 and the PaO2 do not determine the adequacy of oxygen delivery. And this, again, is extremely important. Third, you can increase the oxygenation while in ECMO by increasing the flow, increasing the hemoglobin, decreasing the oxygen consumption, recognizing oxygenator failure, and optimizing or increasing the ventilator settings. Awesome. That's a lot of good, good information right there. Uh, number four, this is, this is mine's much shorter. CO2 clearance is determined by the sweep gas period. Number five, pressure is monitored at a number of points along the circuit, including the pre-pump, pre-oxygenator, and post-oxygenator values. And number six, low flows can be due to low preload or high afterload. Low preload with chattering is the result of hypovolemia, excessive intrathoracic or intra-abdominal pressure, and or poor cannula positioning. Uh, it's just so much great stuff here today, Patrick. So until next time, Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.